0: Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Glani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm really happy to be joined by Dr. Richard Morgan, a clinical instructor at NYIT's College of Osteopathic Medicine. He was a board-certified physician specializing in physical medicine and rehabilitation when he started struggling with substance abuse and subsequently relinquished his license to practice. We're going to find out more about his story and what he is doing today to give back and educate others. Before we get started, I'd like to thank Dr. Jerry Ballantyne of NYIT for the initial introduction to Dr. Morgan, as well as the opportunity that he provided to his students by hiring Dr. Morgan to teach them. So Dr. Morgan, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today.
1: Thank you so much. Shiv. It's a real pleasure. And I want to echo exactly what you said. Dr. Ballantyne's been a real source of strength. And I've looked up to him since I was honored and blessed to have him bringing me on uh, as a faculty instructor at the med school. So it really has been a pleasure. And I wouldn't be here without him.
0: That's awesome. And so I would love to start just, you know, what got you interested in a career in medicine? Can you walk us through that background?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I grew up in Long Island. I have always wanted to be a doctor ever since I was literally two or three years old. It's always been a passion of mine. Ever since I was a young kid, I, you know, hurt myself. And you know, the doctor was stitching me up one time and I'll never forget my mom, instead of like crying and getting scared, I asked the doctor to bring a mirror over so I can watch him stitch up my forehead. So ever since then, I've wanted to be a doctor. And then, you know, as I went to college, that never changed. And then I found out for some friends who were applying to med schools a year ahead of me about the idea of osteopathic medicine, this concept of that the body heals itself, that structure follows function. And you know, that we are kind of, the, treating the body almost holistically, and and really considering the patient as a whole, not just the inherent disease process. And all these factors and all these concepts and tenets, if you will, of osteopathy really kind of led me down the path to say, this is something I really want to be a part of, and I am couldn't be happier than I am. So it's been, like I said, a, a wonderful process, and I was glad to really matriculate at the NYT-COM, back then NYIT, but the NYT-COM as well.
0: That's awesome. And now you're obviously teaching there. So, you know, take us to your story, which is very compelling. Dr. Ballantyne gave me a bit of it, and I've read a lot about it as well. But for our audience's sake, you know, just briefly, everyone now is talking about the COVID pandemic. That's why we started the Raise Line podcast. The pandemic everyone was talking about before COVID was the opioid epidemic. Um, So what is your personal story after you finished med school, went in PM&R, you know, Imagine you have 2 million students in your lecture hall right now, which is our YouTube channel. What, what <laughs> no would you problem. like to tell them?
1: Well, it all really started uh, my third year of med school on my first clinical rotation. Now, mind you, I just started OBGYN, and I had never ever taken a pill. Like, literally, I had never taken a pill in my life. And what happened was I developed a tooth pain. Turns out I had wisdom tooth pain, and all my wisdom teeth needed to be pulled. And this was, like I said, in 1997. So what happened was I went to the dentist, he started to pull my teeth and everything was fine. But on the fourth one, I developed an abscess, 105 fever, lockjaw, I mean, a horrible, horrible pain. And he had recommended an opiate-based painkiller and I wasn't a pill person. I had never taken a pill in my life since I was three years old, which is the most ironic thing about this story. Ultimately, what happened was I ended up using the medicine and it actually helped with the pain. Then the long and the short of it is, there was some gray area. Now, it's very hard for me to pinpoint a specific watershed moment where this happened. But gradually I was taking the medicine and it didn't really help with the pain, but it started to develop this euphoric feeling in me that made me really feel really good and confident. and made me feel like I can even though i was fine before it it made me feel if i wasn't in pain and i was taking it as prescribed if you will it just gave me this feeling of empowerment that i could take on the world and that euphoric feeling just carried with me and very slowly and subtly believe it or not okay so that was 1997 after i had never taken a pill before 10 years after that almost 10 years to the day of taking that first pill I was arrested on a conspiracy to distribute oxycodone, which garnered 168-month or 14-year sentence by the federal government. So it tells you how insidious, how awful, and how really almost deadly that this disease can be. And that's why this passion of mine has led me to be where I am today. I can go into, if you'd like, I know some of the, the things that I did, but oftentimes I have to think about how this addiction led me down this path. It was slow, it was subtle, it was evolving, and it was progressive. And that was the key, you start to do things that you can't believe that you're capable of because the addiction not only messes with your head, but it not, and not only you're trying to retain that high that you've had, there's a period of time somewhere along the line where you're no longer worried about the high, but worried about the withdrawals. And the dope sickness associated with opiates is I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy Shiv. That was the worst part of it. And I was capable of doing almost anything, not just to get the high, but even more so to prevent the withdrawals from lying, stealing, buying prescriptions, selling prescriptions to feed my own head. All these things were evolved within this mix of things that happened and evolved over time that got more and more severe and more and more um, criminal oriented, if you will. And it led me down my path, literally 10 years, uh, which garnered me, like I said, a 14-year prison sentence, of which I did just under nine.
0: You know, obviously, a lot has transpired since that first pill in 1997, probably being arrested was one of them. But what are some of the other inflection points that you can think of, times where you're like, wow, if that had happened or that didn't happen, my life would be different? Anything that
1: really resonates? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, One of the things that I always think about was the type of job I got into. So I started working in a practice where I was just an associate physician, not making a lot of money relative to other positions. Had an inordinate amount of loans. And I think what happened, Shiv, was I just felt very disrespected in my practice. I wish I could have done more. I felt like I was helping the practice grow. But I just felt underappreciated over three years, having helped garner more patients, build relationships with other doctors. And these resentments start to build up in you. And at the time, my addiction was growing. So I think what happened was it was this perfect storm where... I was already using every excuse, you know, minimizing, rationalizing my drug use. But now I had all these other reasons to do it. And these resentments really compound themselves. And at first, you know, it might be a a stressful problem in my marriage or an argument with my wife or whatever at the time. And I go say, I'm going to go use now. And now I'm like having a fight. I feel resentment at work. I'm going to use now. So I would make up all these crazy excuses to use when I probably didn't need to because I was probably going to do it anyway. But I think that's what, rationalizing, minimizing my drug use helped me do, and it kind of progressed from there. So the excuses kept piling on and the use kept getting greater. That was one big thing. The other big thing was, as my drug use progressed, I started to work as rehab. You work in smaller offices. They were putting me in different offices to do nerve testing, which is one of the skills that I learned. And I was in a small urgent care center, and unfortunately, it was an area that had a lot of shady patients. And oftentimes what happened was the one of the watershed moments was they came in. These young kids came in trying to come in saying, listen, I just need a prescription for A, B, or C, whether it be Vicodin, whether it be Oxy, whether it be SOMAs, whatever it might be. And at the time, because my judgment wasn't as great as it could have been, they would start to throw all this money at me. And I would first I said no, but then what I did was I rationalized, justified, and minimized in my head. I can use this money to pay for my own scripts. And that's how I did it. And that was one of those watershed moments in my life that led me down this, the dark criminal path, if you will. And that's where things started to take off. Even if I only minimized it by using, you know, a certain number of patients to do it, but that was really where everything went ahead. And I, I often regret, don't get me wrong, but I think everything in life does happen for a reason and me being here and all the positive things that have happened in the past four years for me, um, I try not to look back on the regrets as much and really just look at the positives of how I can help others.
0: That's incredible. And that's like the, the 10 years from 97 to 2007. And then, you know, things are rarely linear. Like there's obviously a zigzag path a lot of people take, but can you take us to any watershed moments when you were incarcerated that helped you turn around to get to the the clarity and the point you are now where you're actually teaching students and helping them recognize symptoms in their classmates and maybe avoid similar
1: situations? Yeah, it's funny. The first week I was arrested, I was in a jail cell in Long Island. It was awful. It was one of the worst experiences of my life. And I said to myself, as horrible as things were, as low as I was, losing everything, my job, my family, everything that I had in front of me, that everything was looking so promising for me, especially me being that good son who became the doctor. And all these things were happening to me. Once I hit the federal prison, I said to myself, I'm not going to feel sorry for myself because no one else is. And I said to myself, I've just spent the last 15 years of my life educating myself, building my knowledge base, learning all these things, studying for four years to develop and hone my skills, I don't want to lose that. So I want to find some way, some way, shape, or form to help maintain those skills, if not hone them while I'm in prison. And that's what I did, Shiv. Literally, I hit the ground running once I got into prison. I never wavered from that. And literally from the first week, two weeks, I started to develop relationships with other physicians in there and even like staff. And what happened was I got a job in the recreation department, and this was in Morgantown, West Virginia. And once I got that job where I was there for six and a half years, I became the recreation clerk. And I literally said, how can I maintain my skills and help educate others? So what I did was they gave me the authority to actually create programs for inmates. And I literally was responsible for creating an entire curriculum. And I taught many classes that I actually wrote the curriculums for, including men's health nutrition, a get fit fitness class that was like a a Fitbit sort of thing that you have now. Uh, But we obviously had a written version of it. And I taught some other wonderful classes as well. And the students and the inmates loved it, you know, and they learned so much. The nutrition was the best because everyone's trying to stay fit in prison. Um, And I was able to really hone those skills, my education, my teaching skills. I got research from them. My bosses in there really, you know, appreciate what I did because, hey, it makes them look good too, to be honest with you. But, you know, that's what helped me get through my time. And I never stopped doing that from teaching to grading to being involved. And I also started a diabetic fitness class. So I was really very involved in the prison system. And I said, even if I don't, I'm never going to give up pursuing my goals of retaining and restoring my license. But I felt so much better knowing that I made the most of my nearly nine years in the federal system, doing something positive to help others. And it really has made a difference for me.
0: That's incredible. I actually didn't realize that you had started teaching and developing these curricula that then now that's currently what you're doing at NYT. So maybe while we're on the topic of you as a teacher, what are some of the things that right now that you're teaching your students and can you put us in your classroom basically?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I was brought on as a full-time clinical instructor, and I teach a class called DPR 1 and 2, which is first and second year students. And DPR stands for doctor-patient relationship. And what that involves, Shiv, is basically we take the students and we start them by learning three basic skills. And it's over the course of their first two years of preclinical training. And it involves teaching how to do proper patient interviews, using all the necessary skills to communicate with patients both verbal and nonverbal, using all your what we call professional attitude rating scale techniques, using, you know, compassion, empathy, good eye contact, verbal and nonverbal communication, if you will. And then what we do is we teach them how to write proper SOAP notes from SOAP, subjective, objective assessment and plan. And then finally, what we do is over the course of those two years, we break it down into system by system analysis and and teaching of the physical exam skills. And each week they do heart, lungs, abdomen, neuro, skin, you know, whatever it might be. And then we start to develop their diagnostic abilities towards the end of their second year. So we follow an evolution of progress. And it's so much fun for me, because not only do we have a set curriculum, but it allows me to And Dr. Ballantyne did this as well. He asked me to please share my experiences with them. He always told me to be transparent with them. And that's exactly what I am. And I don't tell them right away, Shiv. So when students find out about me through one of my talks through the school or whatnot, I want them to see who I am for what I teach and what I do for them. But then when they find out my story, like peeling the layers of an onion, it's like this aha moment, and it blows them away. And it, it makes me feel good that they're like, you know, it doesn't matter what about my past, but what can I do for you now? And the students have really warmed up to me. And it's been such a blessing. And the best thing is, and I just found this out, Shiv, is i am only been there one full year, and I have just been named the coordinator of DPR One. My director of family medicine just made me, literally, it happened like this week. So I, I couldn't be more blessed. I'm like, who am I? I'm like, I've only been here one year full time. But they told me specifically, Shiv, Dr. Morgan, the students love you. You're engaging. You're young, which, you know, I'm not that young. but And they said, we've had the full faith in you that you can accomplish the job. And it, it really made me feel amazing. It really did, Shiv. Um, so whatever I'm doing, I'm just going to keep on doing it.
0: That's awesome. No, Clearly, you're very dynamic, and congratulations on that announcement this week. Thank you. So obviously, we are very interested in knowing, as our audience are primarily future clinicians and caregivers, or currently providing care, and there's a lot of talk around the opioid epidemic, but also burnout among clinicians, uh, clinicians who are dropping out or getting addicted to substances right now because of physical or emotional pain that they're going through, especially with COVID over the past 18 months. You know what are some of the things you want our audience to know about opioids about preventing burnout any of those kind of topics
1: That's a great question and I'm glad you asked because one of the things that I really try to focus that I want the students to engage on especially students and residents is to be able to recognize specific signs and symptoms of addiction not only are they important and I think I can relate because I live those signs and symptoms. And if someone had maybe recognized them in me, it might have made a difference early on. And I want them to know not to be afraid to, to see these signs and symptoms and recognize, you know, not just the disease process, but as we say in medicine, the supertentorial processes, the things that are going on above the head. So some of the signs and symptoms I often tell students is, you know, starting with like personality changes in your colleagues, you know, oftentimes people with a chemical dependency have problems that can have. Be very subtle changes in their behaviors. They can be short-tempered, standoffish, and very defensive at the slightest of comments, whereas they might not have been before. So these changes, I want them to be able to kind of spot. And second thing is hygiene. You know, people come to work unkempt, poorly shaven, oftentimes maybe not even showering due to sleep, and, and they'll notice these things. And they might also try to keep distance from other people, knowing that they don't look their best. Again, these hygiene things, it's not just enough to say that they're always like, that. But these changes that occur relative to the way they were before their chemical dependency. Third is like latenesses and excuses. Oftentimes they'll show up late for call, late for rounds, um, on call duties. Um, they'll have excuses that don't always seem to kind of align with their normal routines, if you will. You know, people making up excuses, you know, and I hear these stories all the time. I can't make rounds. I'm hung over. Meanwhile, they're either still drunk or still use it. So it, it goes down to a lot of these things as well. And then finally, some subtle signs of active using, you know, they'll take frequent bathroom arrest breaks. Um, they'll show signs of drug use that maybe can be picked by an ardent observer, such as pinpoint pupils, sweating or diaphoresis, urticaria, constant itching, or even abdominal cramping and headaches. And a lot of these can also be Above signs can be led to a presumptive diagnosis. So if you take all of the totality of everything I just mentioned and you put it in a bowl and you see where the healthcare worker was six months ago to now and you see a lot of these changes, this is something that should raise red flags in people. And that's really what I wanna impart in people to be able to recognize these things. Cause they may be subtle, they may be very subtle because trust me, doctors are very smart. They know how to get around these things. I got away with it for a while, but obviously that stuff catches up to you. But I want them to be able to recognize it the way it wasn't as recognized in me right away. So those are some of the things I wanted to impart.
0: Those are some great checklists. I could totally imagine us making that into an infographic. We've been doing a lot of infographics during COVID and released a lot of these on Instagram. So I'll make a note. I'd love to see if we could turn some of those uh, pieces of advice you have or signs and symptoms into an infographic for people to recognize and look out for their peers. What are some of the things you would like to do to change our education system, whether that's prison education, K-12, medical school, so that we're all addressing the opioid epidemic better or other anything else, any other changes you'd like to see?
1: That's a great question, too. So like what I've been doing, one of my passions right now is I got involved with a small group of students who have also been affected in their own personal and professional ways of the opiate pandemic. And we started getting together, along with a couple of the faculty members, we started looking at What's out there now? What's out there at medical schools that is being used? And we actually found a curriculum in Washington State. Um, their medical school has an opiate medicine curriculum. And it's actually, it can be viewed online. It has amazing resources. It educates students. And what we're currently doing is reviewing that curriculum. And with Dr. Valentine's blessing, as well as Dr. Blasey, who happens to be the Dean of Academic Affairs, we actually are working towards assimilating that curriculum into our own. We're picking it apart. Mm-hmm. And I really feel that something like this needs to start at the beginning, Shib. You know, medical students are so swamped, they're so stressed, as you said, people burn out, students burn out all the time. That's why we need to get them at the beginning. I don't mean like third and fourth year clinicals, oh, here's a patient who's, you know, malingering or looking for this. I wanna hit them up right right from the get-go. You need to be aware of A, B, and C. And if we can get them either in a one or two week course, in addition to a webinar series, sharing my story with it, also doing a standard patient encounter, which is what we're looking at as well, I really feel this can make a difference. And having open talks about it, not just a one-way street where you hear us talk and you listen, no, no, no. I find that having an engaging two-way conversation with students so we can hear their sides of it. What are your experiences with it? What do you see here in this scenario that you would do differently? How would you handle this patient? And I feel like this is a topic we really need to have, Shiv. You know, I think it's really important because I gave a talk at New York Medical College a year and a half ago, and the doctors who brought me in to speak and share my story said, just be aware that these students, they're not really open to this. It was like a taboo subject to them. And it really bothered me, Shiv. I really think that the only way we can make this more open and more prevalence to speak about with other schools is to get the word out and to make the changes early on. And if you make the changes early on, I think you'll see the difference.
0: Absolutely. And maybe even earlier than med school. And I'm glad to hear Washington State is a group that you're you're looking at their curriculum. We actually have been working with them for a number of years at Osmosis uh, and we think the world of that group of medical educators. You know, you've been through a lot of challenges and you've come out in a very strong and sanguine way, which is amazing, really inspiring to hear What are some like the philosophies that you've, you know, whether it's God or stoicism or sources of inspiration and strength that you've had to lean on to get to this point from probably below, as well as to stay at the
1: stage? You know, it's funny, being in prison for that long, you have a lot of time to think. And, you know, it's easy to say I did it alone. But you know, I can only go so far alone. But I can tell you that my Jewish faith, and the support I had from the rabbis that came to visit me and one in particular who I still consider my mentor and my rabbi got me through my six and a half years at Morgantown in West Virginia. I still speak with him on a regular basis. I basically ran the Jewish community there. I didn't miss a a Saturday or Friday night service for six and a half years. And the sources of strength that my religion gave me was just empowering for me. And it allowed me to give me the faith and keep the hope and the promises and help me keep me grounded. You know, no one can make this alone. And that's the other thing that I really want to stress to people. If you ever think you have a problem, you're never alone and never ever ever be afraid to ask for help. And that was my problem I was always afraid. I thought I had it. I thought I can do it alone. Or I was just too ashamed to ask because I, I couldn't do it. But really, I found my faith in my religion. I had faith and love and support from my family, my Father was my rock, and my sister and brother were there for me. It was just, it was a wonderful experience to have the support and undying, you know, unwavering, non-judgmental support from my family. And then a lot of this stuff coming home, you know, I've only been home four and a half years at this point. I was literally four years ago, Shiv, I was working in a gym for $200 a week cleaning the sweat off gym machines. I mean, that's what I was doing. Literally living on my brother's couch, trying to get my life together. And here I am today. So I never gave up hope. I never can't appreciate and thank enough the family love and support that they've given me since I've been home. And I couldn't have done it without them. And that the path that led me to get to an NYT con is, is just amazing. And I never gave up hope. I never gave up faith. And the best part of it, Shiv, is I am currently signed up with a physician health program here in New York called CPH. I actually have a very good chance to get my license back. And that, that's even the biggest blessing of all. So um, things couldn't be going better, to be honest with you.
0: I'm really glad to hear that, Dr. Morgan. That's amazing and the sources of strength. My hope is that people listening to this are actively developing those as well. and paying attention to the relationships they have and building upon those as you have. So I know we're coming up in time. Uh, My last question for you is what advice would you give to our listeners about pursuing careers in healthcare today, especially given all that's happening with the digital transformation of medicine and the COVID pandemic?
1: I think that we need doctors now more than ever, and it can be very challenging, like you said, because there's burnout. There's a lot of doctors now who are just, you know, COVID has really made it difficult for them. I mean, watching their patients die, being innovated, hospitalized, it has been very, very challenging. You know, telemedicine has become the wave of this past year and students need to change with the times. But I really feel that there's such a need for it right now. And as long as they're educated, as long as they have that burning desire to constantly help and cure people, and I know a lot of them start at a young age, whether it be from a sick relative, you know, having a positive experience with a doctor who healed them, you know, I think that they need to kind of keep that burning desire inside. Definitely know that there's changes and evolving in healthcare, not only to telemedicine, but to be aware of these pandemics. And like you said earlier, the opiate pandemic was around way before the COVID pandemic, and it's going to be around well after the COVID pandemic. And I think that things like that, um, making students that are coming into medicine aware that they can kind of pay attention to all the other aspects uh, and and be as well-rounded and well-versed in all aspects of medicine, whether you want to be a surgeon, whether you want to be an ER doc, whether you want to go into OB, you know, opiate medicine, opiate addictions and other addiction medicine, they don't discriminate. They don't care. We really need to make sure that our students today are as well-rounded as possible moving forward. And that's why whatever they choose to go in is great, but I want to hit them up early on. Those first two years to me are crucial, Shiv. And that's what really my focus is now, in incorporating this entire curriculum, sharing my story, getting the word out there. you know And we do need that. We do need more students, and we need more physicians who really want to spend their lives caring for others in a very selfless way and that compassion i think still burns in a lot of people and you know i do a lot of the admission interviews for NYITCOM, and the admissions department just told me we had over 10,100 applicants last year with 1100 interviews so medicine is becoming still as popular as ever it's still a field that people desire so I know that the interest is out there and I just hope that they continue to come because you know I'd love to train them and I'd love to continue to share my experiences and guide them along their path.
0: Well, those are an inspiring words, Dr. Morgan. And I'd like to thank you not only for taking the time to be on this podcast with me, but more importantly for the work that you're doing, sharing your personal journey and uh, being a source of inspiration for many of your students and also our listeners now and me.
1: Thank you so much, Shiv. It really has been a pleasure meeting you. And I really look forward to sharing more experiences down the road with you, giving you updates. And I would be glad to share those signs and symptoms with you at any point you'd like in the future.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks again. And with that, I'm Shivaglani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise line. We're all in this together. Take care.